0: Welcome to Adequate Yearly Progress, Special Year in Review Edition. My name is Erin Sterling, and I'm the librarian at Eckstein Middle School in Seattle, Washington. I've been on hiatus for summer, but as the school year is about to start for me, and has started for many others, I'm back. This episode is a special one, because it is a roundtable discussion format, looking at last year in review with fellow Eckstein teachers. This episode features a few voices you've heard interviewed – Chris Bach, who was a 7th grade language arts teacher at Eckstein last year and this summer moved to Chicago to teach, Hillary Logan, who was a math teacher at Eckstein last year and this summer moved to San Francisco to teach, and Paul Cavender, who luckily for me is still at Eckstein and teaches 7th grade social studies. In this special edition, we discussed last year and specifically how Common Core, standardized testing, grading, and technology affected teachers' lives. This is a long but interesting episode, so let's get going. All right, welcome to Adequate Yearly Progress. This is a new edition for me. We are doing a roundtable with some of my good friends from Eckstein Middle School, and we're going to talk about a bunch of different topics, um, basically looking at the year in education um, in review. So we'll touch on Common Core, and we'll touch on testing, and we'll touch on technology, and what's happening, and what are the issues facing students and teachers, and lots of other stuff. So why don't we go around and introduce ourselves? I'm Erin, of course. I'm Chris hillary i'm paul awesome and so chris and paul both teach well they teach language arts and social studies and math (laughs) teaches and hillary teaches math and i'm of course the librarian so let's start with something that everyone's talking about in the news it's all over the place common core what is it exactly it's ruining your children
1: (laughs) (laughs) well no it's not really ruining your children it's just making them crazy um Common Core is a
2: set of standards.
1: a set of standards designed by governors that came together in response to No Child Left Behind, trying to figure out could the federal government have a say of what our standards are? Because prior to this, every state had their own standards. And under um, George W. Bush, may he I won't go there. Um, he when he came up with No Child Left Behind governors responded okay let's create some national standards before that there wasn't any really true national standards so these about 44 chris was that about right originally yeah about 44 governors came in and they got together and they created this standards and everyone jumped on board it was a great idea now if you read the news they're jumping ship because anything that obama tries they want to disset and the fact that anytime you roll something out there's a huge complication with it.
2: But it's more complex than that because states adopted common core in response to Race to the Top and so they were incentivized by the Obama administration the mm-hmm. federal department of education to in order to accept and or or get um, funds from Race to the Top they had to say that they were willing to adopt common core. So yeah, you're right. Obama adopted that whole plan, saying this is a
1: great idea, and we're going to tie it to federal funding. And then that's when the governors kind of pushed back.
3: Well, Common Core is not necessarily the enemy. I think that before Common Core, after the state standards came out, they uh, implemented standardized testing. And I think standardized testing was also a proponent of race to the top because every single state lost their... Ability to get federal funding from No Child Left Behind when they failed to uh, have everyone 100% passing all math and language classes um, by 2014. And so in order to get a waiver to continue federal funding, they had to do stuff like add uh, student test scores to the evaluations and whatnot. And so I think that the problem here maybe isn't Common Core, but it's the fact that we have to roll out Common Core a year after having state testing and then try and have two measurements that are completely different, one being growth and one being a, gro- a measurement of skills tied together for such high stakes, things like teacher evaluation, placement for special ed, and placement for advanced learning. And it's just mathematically not working, but that would ent- you know, entail a country that understands uh, statistics well uh, to vote it out, and that's not happening, so...
2: I appreciate that you're talking about standardized testing versus Common Core and kind of the origin, but it is important just to talk about the origin of Common Core because Paul mentioned that it was the kind of Governors Association that helped create Common Core, and originally they had talked about how there were a bunch of educators that and teachers that helped create the Common Core standards, but kind of subsequently it's been shown that there weren't really very many teachers involved. I think it was two that were involved originally, I'm not sure. and. So they've gone away from using the language that educators were involved in the process, but there was a process where educators and parents really weren't involved in that process and it was a little bit more secretive than I think was intended. But the origin of it is a bit dubious for standards that are used at this point for the most part nationally
0: so how is it different from things that have that we've had before like the you know there have been states it seems it seems like there's always standards that they're rolling out so besides the fact that it's a national thing.
3: I think that common core standards for many states are way more rigorous. I wouldn't necessarily say that for Washington state, but before common core you had a situation where depending on where you were born was depending on or depend that was how you uh, d- it was determined what education you got in some states for example didn't really have really strong science standards and some states didn't have really strong maybe writing standards and then if a kid moved they had no chance at uh, keeping up. I think um, The difference between common core, at least I can only speak to math, but um, would be rather than just content standards, it's content and process now. Um, I think that math, the problem with math in general, I think, is that we just don't have enough emphasis on it. Uh, Educators who teach math don't have to have a lot of math to teach it, and there's not a lot of common math knowledge among Parents and people who aren't in math uh, fields. So we just don't really have the access points that we should, and Common Core is really stepping it up to make it so that everyone has a much higher level understanding, and that's really difficult coming from not having that previously, and so we have this huge gap.
2: Well, what you're talking about raises the idea of whether or not Common Core standards are developmentally appropriate or not. Certainly for language arts, it looks like the Common Core standards um, are about two or three years um Above what's traditionally been the standards in the past, and some people might say that that's creating a more rigorous environment for students. But others who um, look more closely at the standards and are more versed in kind of adolescent and child development and brain development might say that that the standards as they currently are aren't appropriate for children.
3: Here's what I think about that. I don't actually know. I can't speak to humanities standards, but a yeah. comparison I've drawn, and again, I'm not making a judgment. It's just observation. Is a lot of countries who are experiencing their boom of the middle class, uh, Japan uh, is you know already quite um, advanced in their education, but like China and then India, those countries have an emphasis of education that lasts way longer in the day, like 7 to 5 maybe, and then a lot more at night and maybe on the weekends. Um, and their uh, math standards are way more rigorous and also push down... I mean, as an algebra teacher, I definitely agree that the developmental age uh, for algebra is uh, a little higher than it should be in the United States. But then what do you think about all the countries who have it pushed down at such a younger age? And they seem to have some success with it, as in, like, the broader population is able to at least matriculate through the school system. Um, and I think that maybe, I mean, I'm not sure, but maybe the reason that we don't have as much Uh, success, at least in math, uh, is because it's really hard to have success on education. If education is a secondary thing, you know, to maybe an after-school extracurricular activity or family obligations, if we're only devoting six hours of school a day to learning these core subjects, and then not even core, I mean, like, that's like three hours a day, and then we have only 180 days of school, is it even possible to match those countries that don't and do way more?
1: Well. I'm going to play a little contrarian here. Um, When you talk about schools in different countries, you can look at the Finnish model that has gotten a lot of press. You can look at the Indian model. You can look at the Chinese or Japanese model, the Korean model, the schools that always test higher in subjects that at one time, the United States really dominated. Um, We only dominated science with the race to the moon. We've, put so much funding into math and into science in the 60s, and we developed these amazing engineers. Once federal funding disappeared, once the we got to the moon, what do we do now? We discovered it's not made out of cheese, so let's move on. What happens then? Once that federal funding disappeared, I think, and looking back, teaching kind of turned in a different way. If you look at the students in those schools, yes, they can perform well to the test, but are they wholeheartedly, a more well-rounded student. And that's, I think, part of the problem in our society. We don't know what we really want. Do we want a truly rounded student? And I, trust me, Hillary, you know me, I mean, I push for math and I think math is really, really important. But it comes also, what's the type of student we want? And in our society, when you have state rights, when you have the state's control over what they want to teach their citizens, you miss it. Whereas in Japan, this is the way it is. India, this is the way it is. Korea, this is the way it is. It's top-down driven.
3: Well, a counter-question would be, if the United States is uh, taking top-down driven math and science education out to supplement social-emotional growth or well-rounded whole student critical thinking, are we getting those results?
1: No, I'm not saying we're not. I, I mean, but that's part of the question. How do you then? I mean, I totally agree with you. I just, I think that's where the state of education is.
2: And just to clarify, the international assessment that we often talk about where we compare between one country and another is the PISA assessment. And if we actually look at the results and we look at the students that are being successful, not in the United States, if you take out the students that come from struggling kind of impoverished backgrounds, the United States outperforms any other country in the world. It's just because we have such a high number of students who are in poverty. If we look at the free and reduced standards, I think they were just released, there was a study probably six months ago, that said 51% of students in the United States um, are qualifying for free and reduced lunch, which is really kind of absurd if you think about it in our country, which is a wonderful country that so many students don't have access just to the you know basic resources that they need to be successful. It's really those students who aren't being um, actualized by our school system. But we do a great job with students who come to school kind of with the resources to be prepared.
3: Do you think that's because the United States has compulsory education for all children, um, except for maybe like 1% that's incarcerated? And maybe uh, perhaps those countries that are reporting out good numbers don't have compulsory education for all citizens, Well only able-bodied ones?
1: Actually, almost every country has some form of compulsory education. My students were looking into this this year. It was really great, and they are looking at... What do countries require? And a lot of countries have compulsory education, but a lot of it stops in eighth grade. Or even in high school, it's that when I look at the data, when I look at how other countries run their schools or run the educational system there, it's almost like it's back in the 50s for us.
0: But I think it's not just about how the schools are run. I think it's also about the social and uh programs that we put in place for people right because i mean if we're looking at poverty rates that's a huge thing so it may be that the other countries aren't necessarily the education system isn't that much different but well no but
1: the thing is also is that education for a lot of the countries is a way out for us as a you know pseudo historian you're looking at the peak of american society and it's flow throughout history. It's if you're looking at it, I'm not going to be down, but it's almost like the Roman Empire. You know, when do you get to when you get to a critical mass, when you get to that level, what happens to society? You talk to the older generation, you talk to my dad's generation who is in his 80s. You look at them and they're like, "Well, look at the youth today." And that's
2: a common thing that every parent will say. But we're trying to do things that we have never done before. That's I mean, we're trying to educate Every single student, right. which was not something that was done in the past at no. all. I mean, we are very actively you know, stating that that is our mission. 100% of students, no matter how they come to school, that it is our job to ensure that they leave our schools with an education. And that's different.
1: Well, it's also different because our society has changed. My point, though, is is that I don't want to say we become complacent, but it's be, this is like an expectation. You're going to go to school. You're going to go to 12. You're going to you know, go through high school, hopefully graduate. I mean, we peaked in the 70s at 72 to 76% graduation rate. It never changed. In over 40 years, it has yet to change. That's the average still. So I think what educationers, educational people are trying to figure out is like, how do you reach the other 24? But then my point is, then what do you do with them afterwards? I mean, we always hear they need to know technology. They need to know this good skills. They need to understand 21st century skills that's because we've developed far enough that we are now an informational economy we're not a manufacturing economy when you were in 1960 and you got through 10th grade there was a job at the factory waiting for you now there's not i think that's what's really scaring a lot of educators and a lot of people in our society is that what do we do next what's the next level
2: and I think to be honest and fair, we don't actually know. I mean, we teach middle school and our students are essentially going to be entering the job market and, you know, whether it's five or kind of nine years when they graduate from college, if they go straight through, I mean, the world's going to be radically different. And so we are kind of throwing darts at a dartboard, guessing what the future is going to be like. I mean, there are all sorts of things that we kind of talk about in abstract ways that are going to come to reality, all sorts of technologies, things like autonomous self-driving cars, which are going to radically transform the transportation industry and other industries as well, but I mean there are between three and I think seven million dollars or seven million people who are working in the transportation industry. And realistically, set, uh, you know, ten, nine years from now, when many of our students will enter the workforce, those jobs could, could very be- realistically not be there. And
1: they're good paying jobs. And then what do you mm-hmm.
0: do there? So, kind of thinking about we've talked the broader terms. What are the implications of actually putting into place Common Core in your classrooms? Um, Yeah, Hillary. Eckstein's really
3: where we work. Eckstein is really specifically, I think, a challenge because 50% of our students are ahead in math. They have voluntarily opted into advanced math, so they're one or two or three grades ahead. And Common Core, in a sense, jumped about six months um, of a school year. So kids are and I can just really speak for my class right now, Uh, what used to be an Algebra 1 curriculum is now mostly Algebra 2, a little bit of Algebra 1. And so kids who skipped, let's say, they entered my class as a 6th grader uh, from 5th grade last year, they're now moving into about 11th grade math. And so that's really hard for them. It's been quite a challenge. Um, So I think that just skipping in general is making it so... Uh, Either real or fake, the Spectrum students maybe look a little bit more agenda these days. But I think also um, something that's really quite concerning and also frustrating uh, for kids, but uh, for teachers, is because of Common Core and because of the backlash of Common Core in New York, I think that publishers are really hesitant to put out a curriculum, and school districts are really hesitant to purchase one. And until the wrinkles are ironed out in Common Core, we won't be receiving any sort of curriculum adaptation for that. However, we are still held to the high-stakes standardized testing and the accountability that the Common Core requires, but we are left without resources to do so. So the school district has been piecemealing stuff together for years and asking us to try it, but last year the whole state was still um, held accountable to the Washington State Standards, so we couldn't teach Common Core. So this is really like the first-year rollout, but it's also the first-year rollout of high-stakes first-time testing, switching from paper to computer, without a lot of support, without a textbook to really even show us a roadmap of where we're supposed to be. And there's a lot of accountability and uh, penalties associated with all this, not just for kids, or not just for teachers, but for kids and families too. So that I think that's a huge implication right now. And tested subjects anyway.
2: You bring up a really interesting point. None of us are fortune tellers. I mean, we can't see what's going to happen years down the road. But even even in the kind of the national senate and even our state Senate, I mean there are bills in the education committees that even go as far as doing away with standardized testing the way that we're currently doing it in this first year of the implementation of Common Core and our Smarter Balanced assessment. So it's very difficult to be in the position of being a teacher and supposed to be administering um, these tests and preparing our students for these tests. Not only we don't have curriculum at this point, but also when we really are unsure how our state is going to decide to handle these tests and how our federal government is going to decide these tests.
3: Well, to add to that, Common Core has been organized in grade levels, similar to state standards, K through 8 for mathematics, and then, because states do it differently everywhere, and there was such a huge backlash, I think, um, so traditionally, the the subjects that you would teach in high school math would be algebra, it invents algebra, and then geometry, and then some sort of combination of trigonometry or pre-calculus, and then calculus would be the elective senior class for advanced students. There is a giant compiled group of high school standards that are not assigned a grade. So, rather than having, say, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade math standards after 8th grade, standards are then broken into content math strands, such as functions, algebraic reasoning, numeric reasoning, geometric reasoning. And as of October... Uh, Washington state, stand, Washington state as a state, did not have an agreement on what standards they wanted to organize into algebra one, geometry, algebra two, and precalculus. So, because of that, they decided to abandon the standardized testing for those years, but also abandoning the curriculum maps. So, it is still unclear for all states in all high schools what math would even be. Appropriate to teach and it's left up to the teacher which has huge negative implications for example a first year teacher who really needs to be mentored through that or someone who might not have as much content knowledge uh, as that's required to teach
2: well even an experienced teacher um has a great deal of experience and knowledge in their content i mean that's going to take time away from the classroom and working with students because they have to make have to research and make decisions about their curriculum. So naturally, their time is going to be spent doing some of that rather than actually working with students as much as they might have otherwise.
0: And kind of both of you have talked about there's standardized testing and then there's the standards. And I've heard some people say, well, I, I agree with the standards. It's just the way that uh, the way that we students and teachers are being assessed on the standards is is wrong. So what exactly... What is that tension?
1: Well, for me, who is not tested, I'm a subject, I teach social studies, and I'm not tested on it. So for me, it was being a teacher who volunteered and said, I will take my students that I share with Chris, and I will get them prepped for this new form of testing. We're going to work it out. We're going to kink it out because I believe that Chris needed the time to instruct them on how not just to pass the test, but how to be good language arts students. So it took away from my time as a social studies teacher. So that was just skills. preparing for the test. That was just preparing for the test. And then I rolled into doing kind of like, Killer and I, we spent half a day just testing to figure out how do we work the system. I mean, we were lucky that our school, according to our um, our tech supervisor from downtown, um, was way more prepared than almost any other school because we actually took the initiative to figure out what are we going to do. But it takes those
2: times. There Teachers- really were. That our testing coordinator and individual staff members very much took it upon themselves to figure out how to be successful in doing this.
3: Here's an example. So Washington State standards for math were something along the lines of there were content standards and process standards. So, for example... Uh, an algebra standard that was common was um, given a system of equations, solve for the independent dependent variable, which would be x and y. And a kid could show demonstration of that by taking two equations and setting them equal to each other, and then solving for the variables. That was how they demonstrated mastery of that standard. So now the Common Core comes along and says, for the same standard, assuming the same teacher or you know group of teachers is teaching, there's a bike shop. There are eighty bikes. Some of the bikes have three wheels, and some of the bikes have two wheels, and some of the bikes have tall handlebars, and some of the bikes have short handlebars, and they give you all these pictures and diagrams and a huge story problem, and you have to figure out how many wheels, how many sets of handlebars there are. Now, ideally, every teacher, I'm sure, would love to walk in and teach problem-solving skills to their students all day long, and the books that we are given are always pushing for problem-solving skills, but... And you take a 90-minute lesson, and you push it down to 45 minutes, and you also have things like morning announcements involved in there, and you also have 42 individual giant standards to teach in math. It's not like you really get to problem solving. So these kids, at least in the last eight years, have been really conditioned down to a lot of uh, breadth, but not a lot of depth. and. I wouldn't even say it's the fault of the teacher. It's because the teacher's heavily penalized if those kids aren't passing these tests. And so we don't have a group of students who really know how to navigate through a problem like the bike problem where they're using their skills, but they also have to use skills that are hidden. Like, what is the question asking? How am I going to write my thoughts down? How am I going to persevere when I'm not really sure what to do? drawing a picture, a technical picture even, these are things that, unfortunately, we've never had time to teach because up until September, up until last June, I was being forced to teach an entirely different set of standards with a, with a teacher growth rating over my head uh, that determined what, how much you know I was going to maybe get paid or have probation in my evaluations. So, I think that uh, when you have an immediate switch, even if it is the same understanding, it's asking the kids to think a lot differently, not saying that they can't. They're very capable, but we would need a lot more hours in the day or a lot more focused instruction on problem solving, which hasn't been there.
2: We've talked a lot about uh, the math standards specifically, but I haven't really mentioned about the ELA standards, English language arts standards, and how kind of They have driven a change in language arts. And the fact of the matter is that now we spend, because of the Common Core standards, about 50% of our time reading nonfiction texts. Whereas traditionally, we spent more time reading fiction. And so that resulted in students reading kind of longer works of fiction and novels. And I think over the past few years, we switched to Common Core standards. There's been kind of a reduction in the number of novels that students have read. We've had to sacrifice it in order to prepare students for the Common Core and the SBAC tests. So we focus more on nonfiction and shorter assessments. Now, there are some really good benefits to that. I mean students can get some really specific skills that they wouldn't get otherwise. But there's also an experience that many students don't get involved with literature in a way that's intrinsic. And that's problematic as a language arts teacher because teacher because I want students and I need students to become students who enjoy literature and enjoy reading uh, not because it 's something that they have to do and they have to use a specific set of skills to do, although they're useful, but it's because something that they love to do and that they and they learn the value of kind of finding the intrinsic motivation to read so there's
1: no no no, I was going to say though this is a sad thing is that usually in our parents' um educational history and our educational history, nonfiction text was done in social studies history um Literature was done in language arts, the analyzation of literature, the author's intent, the author's purpose. Um, well, they don't test for social studies. So where are we going to test the knowledge? How can a student read a passage and take out good details? Well, I will teach that in social studies, but I'm not tested on it. Chris is. So Chris now feels more of a pressure to say to make sure my students understand that. Because every now and then, I mean, I could flake on a day, and it could come back to haunt Chris. None of his students count against me. Because part of No Child Left Behind is teacher growth, teacher assessments, whatever you want to call it.
0: Well, and I think, uh, so one of the things that's come up is that, I mean, there's been standardized testing for... A long time, like since <laughs> I, you know, 50, I my you early know, 30s. I had
1: standardized testing back and, in but the yeah, it's modern forms. So the Iowa Test of
0: Basic Skills is not the same
3: thing as a WASL.
0: Oh, nor is was
1: the California Aptitude Test.
0: So, what exactly is? I guess we, we've talked a little bit about it, but what exactly is getting people up in arms about? the back testing or this particular testing. Um, and it's, I mean, I can start from a librarian perspective. So it's, uh, a, there's a switch to computerized testing. And it's, I think there's a whole set of issues with that. Um, but yeah, yeah, go ahead, Chris. Start.
2: So computerized testing, I think when you first think about it and your first initial kind of pondering of the issue, it's like, great, we're going to move to a system where students are taking tests that reflect modern technology That might some of the uh, questions on the test might be scored quicker because they're multiple choice or they can be scored by a computer, and so that sounds great. But one of the major problems is is that it leads to a very inequitable experience for students and for schools. There are schools and districts where students have access to technology, where every student has access to a computer or some sort of device on a daily basis or a, you know, some approximation of a daily basis. And there are other districts and schools where students don't have that access to technology. So some schools and some districts are able to administer the SBAC test or the testing that we're talking about in a number of days, whether it's four days or a week, but a shorter amount of time. And there are other schools and districts that have to take months on end to cycle through with the limited technology that they have to assess and test every single student. And that's very problematic because it takes away computers, computer labs, technology and devices away from students who could be focused on learning and um, creating uh, products to kind of testing takes away. All- oh, sorry, let's somebody take over for me.
3: Well, I think that one of the things that is, needs to be pointed out, what Chris was saying is, for example, at our school, um, a lot of the technology was purchased by the parent. Uh, ptsa for the purpose of uh, enrichment of their students education and it's being completely now unavailable to the students whose you know family is intended for them to do creative cool things uh, for the purpose of making sure that we have all students tested especially we're looking i mean we're talking about sbac but we just finished a very controversial period of time in seattle public schools where we tested map for kids three times a year and sometimes more depending on whether or not that kid need to be placed into special education or advanced learning and so we're in the middle of a period of time where kids can spend on average 12 days uh, of their 180 testing but also more depending on if they are being uh, placed into special ed- or advanced learning
0: well to well, me the problem with, with the because actually parents didn't pay for that much of our technology we got it through Uh, like most of our laptop carts that were tested on but one of the issues is that with all these standards and with these heavy standards and these rigorous standards when you have uh, equipment that has to be set aside for every single child to be tested without really the teachers or the students getting much out of it right i mean it's for the purposes of states compare in some ways and hopefully maybe in the future we'll be able to see it but that we're being asked to teach these standards and yet in some districts, well it can be more inequitable that there is then not the, the there's not some of the resources there that would be helpful to teach those standards. Um, so I think that's where some of the frustration lies for me is it's like, well you're asked to teach these standards and we're going to hold you accountable for them. but some of the things that would make actually teaching these, te- these standards better or easier or more rigorous for students is then used mm-hmm. for a purpose of like every child taking this test.
1: I think part of the problem also was the fact that our state didn't know what they were doing. I mean.
3: But it's still high stakes. I know it's still
1: high stakes. And this is the, this is the sad thing is our state was throwing it out piecemeal at a time because they were trying to figure it out. Um, If you talk to our principal or when she found out she went to every single SBAC meeting, that our district had and our district coordinator would say, when I find out, I'll let you know because the state wasn't sure. Then when they came up for special ed, what are the um, requirements for special ed? How do you accommodate special ed students? They gave this in January and it said, you should have been doing this since September. And it's like, well, uh, thanks, but how do we really do it? So then our special ed teachers technically could be dinged due to the fact that our state is saying, no, this needs to be done. And our, but they've let some districts waiver waver on it saying you don't have to assign it to um, teachers' growth scores. But our district said, no, we need to because the fear of losing federal money. And that's another issue to, onto it. It adds to the pressure. But to my that.
0: question is whether... I mean, this was the first year of running this, yeah. at, right? And I think there are some there's sort of a difference in my mind between issues that maybe can be hammered out because it's the first year. And whenever you roll out something for the first year, they're like things that maybe no one is prepared for. I'm sure the state was also waiting on things or blah, blah, blah. They probably have various excuses or explanations or whatever of their own. So I guess the question in my mind is though, is it, is there something that's inherently flawed about this kind of testing that we're doing, or is it just that we need to improve it better?
2: So, one of the ways I think that's helpful to look at SVAC testing is by kind of looking at the results, looking at the data that we get back on students. So people, when they talk about, and they're a proponent of Common Core and doing this high-stakes testing, talk about how teachers need this information and schools need this information to be able to make decisions about students and to be able to ensure that all students are learning. And although it's very true that we want all students to be able to learn and to the maximum potential and to become intrinsically motivated when we look at the results that we get from this test we get basically a four point scale students can be a one a two a three or a four and we really don't get any other information besides that so i can actually give an assessment in my classroom i could have given it today and i can go home i can grade it and i can come back tomorrow and i can have more useful information on that individual assessment which i do throughout the year than i would get from this test So we spend all of this time, we spend all of this money, all of this energy on doing this testing. And the result that we get is a single score for a student that says, hey, they're at standard. Hey, they're above standard. Hey, they're below standard. When I can get immediate and usable information from assessments that I give on my own.
3: I I would say that the most useful... I mean, I intended useful uh, reason for this data would be to measure schools and then also states and possibly teachers. Um, I'm not positive it gives us any useful information about students. For example, uh, 50% of students, as I said earlier, in Eckstein are in advanced math, and all of them take grade-level testing for their uh, standardized end-of-the-year tests. So, for example... A hundred percent of my students are currently doing ninth grade math, and seventy-seven percent of them are eighth graders. The rest are seventh graders. I've had sixth graders in the past, and I stopped teaching for thirty class days, which is about six weeks, in order to review with them content of math that they've already mastered. They've shown mastery in. Uh, it does nothing for me. To see whether or not, and by the way, see in August when these students have been moved on to the next grade level how they performed in math they learned the year before me. So, to give you an idea, I teach eighth grade, an eighth grade student in ninth grade math, and I won't get their scores of how they did in eighth grade math until they're in tenth grade. And what it does do, which is way more dangerous, is it gives It takes away 30 days of classroom instruction for a content that students actually now in Washington State will be tested on in the end of their high school career to determine graduation. Um, We are robbing students of 30 class days of a foundation in math that they actually need that will determine their future and could quite possibly determine whether or not they get into college.
0: I guess, but do you think that that could be... Like, could they fix it to make it... To make it work, not in the current model that Seattle has
2: correct I mean the the, the the rollout both kind of nationally of common core standards came from kind of a place where the federal government and the Federal Department of Education was in some ways coercing states to adopt common core standards and it wasn't the standards themselves weren't kind of developed in the way that was originally articulated. Um, Originally, it was articulated that more educators were involved and more child development specialists, and that's been shown that that wasn't the case. So it's very problematic to continue testing and to develop a model around a set of standards that was developed in an inappropriate way and then to continue testing on testing that wasn't implemented Um, in a way that there was a series of years where states, districts, and schools could pilot the program, figure out the kinks, but where students this first year are being subject to, in some cases, graduation or, in some cases, placement in either advanced or um, support classes based on the data that we get from this test. And what's especially problematic is that we one of the reasons that Hillary articulated and that many people who are proponents of testing... um, articulate why testing is a good thing is because we're able to compare schools say school a is doing an excellent job of educating our students whereas school b isn't doing such a great job and so we can either give them additional funding or we can rearrange schools so that that doesn't happen the problem is is that there's current research being done that really shows that when we look at high stakes testing on a school by school and a district by district basis if you look at income and whether or not students come from affluent backgrounds or they come from middle class backgrounds or student, or they come from backgrounds where students and families are struggling that with I think it's about an 80 percent accuracy, the exact same data that we get from the tests can be figured out through looking at the incomes or the uh, economic status of families. So we spend all this time, this energy and effort to get data that we can get by looking at the income status of families. And it's very problematic that students um, and schools are spending so much time doing this work um, when that's preventing us from doing some of the things that we might otherwise do, where we could actually actualize students and get them excited about learning.
3: What would be way more beneficial is interim six weeks uh, testing on a growth model. That would give me real-time data on how I was impacting my students, and it would give them data. and if it was at a district level rather than a state level, it'd be much quicker uh, feedback loop. And I think there are school districts doing that, and that's what much more effective. Mm.
0: And and to me, I think one of the uh, one of the th- things that I think about is that there's a lot of stuff being used about what standardized testing we can get out of it right like there are different ways to look at it because there's the comparing schools thing there's also the like teacher growth ratings and i feel like we f- throw it all together and because if really if we want to compare schools we don't need to test every student like statistically speaking that's not that no. that's silly yeah. the way we're doing it now seems silly to me if we're not going to get any useful data we, we as teachers are not going to get any useful data if we want to test students and get a Uh, You know, if we want to compare gun schools, you can do a sampling, you know, you can do And that's what we do
2: for our national tests with the PISA and between countries, we do a sampling.
0: Right. So I think that's what can be frustrating. And that's where I'm not sure I see any, any movement towards something that could be more positive to Is that like, we've done this for years and years and years and nothing, it's still being used in very much the same way. Even if now it's computerized versus paper and pencil, it's never data that we see as teachers that we really use, except for... Well, I don't know. A lot of well, times placement. That, we, that but, we use for placement, but that's not that's not really... I mean, that's helping but the it's, district.
1: Call me the, the cynic. It's not going to change. We are so data-driven. We are so... Oh, Why would it
3: have, change if there's a no-contest bid for Pearson? I mean...
1: Well, yeah, you could go through that aspect that... And this is part of the complaint is that... And this is well-known is that curriculum is really driven by two states, Texas and California, because they have the largest school districts. They have the largest population. And if you're a publisher, you want to curtail all, and you want to customize all your books to them because then you can sell it to everyone else. It's cheaper that way. It's, it's an economically feasible sense. And if it's not, and if someone's doing a test, then if they're the only company that's making the test, is like Hillary saying, is why, you know, how do you do it when there's only one bidder? There's no competition, but it's not just that. It's I mean, you got to look at. It's not just piercing. Well, if Hillary. students
3: continue to fail, well, then
1: don't blame the teachers.
3: Well, if students continue, <laughs> if students continue to fail, then the way to measure their uh, ascent out of failure would be more testing, which is uh, profitable. And then, if teachers continue to fail, the way to measure their improvement would be with more testing. And then, the way or to remedy teachers. that would be new curriculum. Uh, and it's all coming from the same place.
2: It's. You're, I mean, you're, you're kind of alluding to things that are going on in education. There's so many different, yeah. uh, organizations and special interest group that have a stake. Some have a financial stake. Uh, there are, uh, organizations like the Gates foundation or the Eli broad foundation or the Walton foundation that have a certain viewpoint about education, how it should be. And to advocate, uh, for that viewpoint through their donations and the organizations that they fund there are different political groups that have different opinions about what the outcome of education in the united states should be and right now we don't agree i mean we don't agree as a country there are so many different opinions and so many different political groups that are uh throwing not throwing but that are very vehemently advocating for their point of view um, for what they want for our system. And it's very much that the education uh, education policy in the United States is kind of a microcosm of our greater political uh, kind of zeitgeist right now. Things are in turmoil. People are trying to figure out a way forward for our country, and it's like that for uh, the education system right now in the United States.
1: But the sad thing, it wasn't like that. And partly it was because, as I alluded earlier, The Cold War? Well, not just the Cold War. (laughs) Yes. I lived (laughs) through it. You, and unfortunately, were... A twinkle. (laughs) (laughs) No, but... When you're burgeoning economy, and you always start... Starting with the agrarian society, then you move to manufacturing, and after manufacturing, what do you do next? And this is the issue that's happened throughout all of the developed countries. You're looking at societies that, what do we do next? Because we can't manufacture because we have such a high cost of living. We have these standards set in place. So, I mean, the smartest thing and the worst thing our government ever did was the GI Bill. It put everyone to college. It was the smartest thing because you got people access to college and that's what we want. We want an educated society. Then it came down to everyone needs to go to college. And that becomes a standard. And so we've now developed the zeitgeist, as Chris alluded to, is like, well, we're not number one. We're not even number 10 in these testings. We're falling behind. But are we really, truly falling behind? I would say no.
2: We're not falling we're behind not. because... We're no. not.
0: Well, some students are well, not meeting some, some students are, are not, achi- not. Yeah.
2: achieving their full potential. No,
1: yeah. that is totally true. But we've now got so fixated on... Ooh, our numbers are down and that's a business approach. Our numbers are down. We've got to improve it. And so it's like, but I don't remember truly. Well, maybe I blocked them out, but I don't remember a lot of bad teachers through my educational system and they never got tested. They were never saying, how are you improving? Are you showing student growth? And I came out fine. Maybe it's my socioeconomic background. (laughs) I don't
2: know. Although there are certainly teachers who struggle to be successful in any school district, I would say, it's more of a myth that there are bad teachers that are pervasive throughout our system. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most teachers are exceptionally excellent at doing this job. Yeah. Anyone who says otherwise, I invite to come into the classroom and do procert. And do Or
0: working toward being that. But I mean, to, but to, yeah, I exactly. I mean,
2: teachers are very diligent and earnest people who want the best for students. Even though there are all sorts of different personalities and people who become teachers, teachers are earnest and they work exceptionally hard to compensate for a system that isn't perfect.
1: And especially the ones who have lasted more than the average of five years. I mean, you have really good teachers who. Start out really strong, earnest, I'm going to go you know forthright all this great stuff, but they burn out in five years because that's what happens. We don't have a lot of mentoring, but those who make it past that point um really develop and hone their craft and become really excellent teachers and I would say that's ninety nine percent
2: one of the things that's happened is there's been a reform movement in the United States, and part of it was kind of initiated with No Child Left Behind. But Michelle Rhee and her work kind of is an exemplary model for the reform mindset, kind of going into a district, blaming teachers for the failure of students and doing a lot to try and shake up a district mm-hmm. and find teachers who are going to be the superhero teacher, kind of the sorts of teachers that were talked about in Waiting for Superman. And the fact of the matter is that we can we can look for the millions of supermen or women teachers in our country, or we can create a system that enables regular people, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers. family members, mothers, Um, family members people who are real people who come to school who work exceptionally hard with students to make connections to learn their curriculum to design lessons that are relevant that really do actualize students and we have to have that sort of system where the people who are coming here earnestly working to be teachers can be successful and it's Problematic in the current political environment, and it's problematic in the context of Common Core standards and of the high stakes testing that we currently do. That's why there's starting to be such a backlash by parents. That's why there's starting to be such a backlash by teachers, and in some cases, politicians. If you look at the Republicans that are currently kind of articulating that they're going to run for the presidency, there are all there are different examples of candidates who have completely flip flopped they've gone from being full scale supporters of common core to being people who are you know very vehemently against common core state standards um.
3: When you talk about that, it makes me think about citizenship. We have been for a while a country where pretty much things stay the same, whether or not the average person participates in their local government or federal government but when you say that thing about Michelle Rhee, I think there was data that was put out on a large scale with the motion picture of Waiting for Superman, and also just in general, the idea that the most the the strongest data point in a student's success is the classroom teacher, but that uh, was not taken into account poverty, and when we have people who are constantly complaining about education, but then don't actually Vote with regards to who is making the educational policy, then it becomes how many people are paying attention, how many people really care. Because you have to be a person who can read data and pay attention and also critically think through that and then make the decisions. And that's just like not happening. But
1: Hillary, isn't that what the Common Core is supposed to do? Make an educational society of people. Right. The but what I'm saying people? is
3: if you have, you know, a, a busy family and you have kids in school, but oh, yeah. you have a million other things going on. Um, nothing's really going to change. This country is not one who makes education the first priority of a family all the time. And that's not to say that families don't try. I feel like it's really hard when you're, especially in poverty, if you have a, a one-parent household or you're just trying to make ends meet in general, given the last you know six years of the economy. But it's not really going to change because I think a lot of people can kind of turn it off and move on with their day uh, and not really think about it.
0: So uh, I think this conversation has been really interesting, and it's kind of uh, uh, tried, tried to branch this like these huge issues. And now I'm wondering, um, for the third segment, flipping towards looking at our students and all the amazing things you guys are doing with our students, and specifically uh, technology. Uh, because we've talked a little bit about technology, and we've talked a little bit about the move to STEM, and we've talked a little bit about uh, how technology can be used in really – frustrating ways. Well, for, for my purposes in terms of we have this technology and we use it for like this testing, which can drive me crazy. But what are we, what are cool things that we're doing with technology? Where, where is it going? Um, what are some of the challenges around it so you with you as students?
1: Start us to a nice and more happier topic. Yeah,
0: well, I just think we need to move on. Uh... <laughs> oh, I, can, I, I can
1: turn technology
2: pessimistic. Don't worry. Sorry no, if but... I
0: went down a dark Yeah. Oh, no, you're good. I don't know how to transition either, so.
1: You
2: need a commercial break.
1: Now, (laughs) you got to follow (laughs) Terry Gross. Um, No, I mean, the three of us here, I've learned so much from technology from you, Aaron, this year. I've learned a lot from Chris. Hillary is doing some amazing stuff right now. She was just telling us how she was just totally blown away, and she's going to elaborate on that and put it on the spot in a minute. Um, Technology, though, is only as good as the instructor. And it's only as good as how does it apply to really learning? I mean, Chris and I are amazed that our kids can nail any phone app and a game within two seconds. Ask them to format a Word document and they are completely lost.
2: Oh, even you, just how to save a document. Oh, oh
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. How to save
0: into a flash drive. <laughs>
1: exactly. Oh, <laughs> flash drive. Doc, where do I find this? And it's like, you had tech last year, but then... You have to I always have to remember, and this is the frustrating part, is what most parents know but don't understand, excuse me, is that you know the frontal lobe and the whole brain shuts down anywhere between roughly <laughs> sixth to eighth grade and every parent would tell you, This this is not my child, because the brain is being totally rewired. We know this now, but yet we still have these same expectations that these standards should be met and that these testing should be done. But so when it comes to technology, I always forget it's like, oh, you may have learned this last year, but it's empty now. You need to get a little refresher course. And that times is frustrating me, but we should talk more about the fun stuff in technology.
0: Or just, or I guess not necessarily that it just has to be fun, because I agree with your point. I think there are really cool ways in which technology is being used in this tool. And we're in a very fast moving time period where, I mean, every year, we get new phones and, and the rate that technology is advancing. And so I'm curious about how, about how we're using that as a tool and where we see that's going.
3: I think I want to first say that I can't, we can't speak for everyone because we're very, I think us sitting at this table are very fortunate to work in a building where we have been given the autonomy to experiment with education, even if it goes badly. I have been lucky here, to have here. the time to do right now. I'm in the middle of the fourth day of a YouTube Video project, and I have had uh, nothing but green light from the administrators to go ahead and try and see if it works out, and then report back. Whereas I think there's a lot of people who have been just under the thumb of standardized testing, standardized testing, and aren't able to to do that. So first of all, that's a huge big thing. Um, but I think uh, it really, it's really contingent on I. I think we all, again, as a group, naturally would just use technology in our personal lives. I'm pretty well versed at the iPhone. I've been using YouTube for a while. You know, I'm pretty... uh,
0: You're also willing to try things.
3: I'm willing to try things. And I think that it's it's a challenge if maybe you wanted to be that person, but you didn't have the experience. Because we all, let's face it, learned how to use technology basic computers and basic uh, cell phone and iPad skills probably in our just off time. You know, we didn't do that at school. So and a
1: good teacher is the one who's going to say, I'll try it. And if it fails, move on. I mean, good teachers don't worry about one day. They don't worry. Maybe even about three days of a failed lesson. Well, let me give they you go you back and reflect the, and they try and make it. Let me give you the time. perspective
3: though. And so I, I've always looked to you guys as a, uh, inspiration to the technology use, but I haven't really had any dynamite examples of how I could really meaningfully implement uh, technology into my class because there's such a chasm between what I'm supposed to be teaching and then also the access to technology we have. Unless someone shows me a cool lesson on an iPad or the computer about how I can really tie math in then I have to pick and choose. This happened to be actually an idea that Aaron and Chris came up with. Um, We're making video tutorials but that's not something I came up with and so I think that it would be really awesome to continue to give people just all sorts of ideas maybe they never thought of. That's how you'll get people in.
0: And I think you need to be constantly doing that I guess is my perspective because things do change because there were web quests that librarians were doing like five years ago before I became a librarian. It was like the hot new thing and it was online and you learned how to think well...
1: It's it, obsolete. It,
0: it's not a th- <laughs> I mean there are these websites that exist that have created. So there's a continual need to both be trained on how to use it and then... Also have time to be able to experiment with it, like you're saying, because that's that's the thing I find most about technology is you're like, oh, I figured out this great thing, but then okay, we're on a school Wi-Fi network. Okay, wait. So the way that I know personally how to upload a video to YouTube, for example, doesn't exactly work, and so a lot of it is this trial and error as you're working with within the devices. And so, um, so I think there are cool ways to use it, but I agree with you. I think it's all about training because you're willing to try it and you're young and you're experienced. And there are a lot of teachers who they've seen years and years of things change constantly. And it's hard to get on board if you think, well, it's going to take me so long to get on board. And then it's just going to change. Well, I
3: didn't, I didn't learn how to make a YouTube channel and a YouTube video from working at Eckstein. I did it to make my own videos. And I also
0: um, had a YouTube channel
3: beforehand. So I think that... In order to be that person where you're, you're implementing all this technology, you've got to be doing it constantly in your own life too,
0: right? Or you have to have some train, like very specific training, I think, or uh, time for training.
2: Those of you sitting around this table obviously know I'm a big proponent of using technology. No, you're not.
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> I gotta I,
2: lighten this up, now, guys. Yeah, uh, I mean, I uh, right. I mean, I put a PD proposal before the building with you know some of you to increase the amount of technology that we use and i've obviously made some attempts this year to incl- include technology in some of the curriculum that i've been doing um, whether it's the podcast i did with you aaron or other things but part of the problem with technology is that there's conflicting research about technology yeah. use in the classroom that just using technology does not mean that there is going to be um, an increase in student scale or an increase in student um, kind of
0: Engagement. Interest,
2: interest or engagement. Yeah, um, it's 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 problematic. There is all sorts of research that says different things. And so for an educator to have the time to kind of figure that out and make sense of it is hard. And a teacher who perhaps isn't as comfortable using technology can look at some of that research and say, see, I need to keep doing the same thing that I've been doing. And somebody who's newer to the profession who just might happen to be more comfortable with technology might say, see. I need to do everything that I can to include as much technology as possible. We live in an age where we don't have necessarily clear answers. However, with that said, I really do think that using technology in the classroom is valuable. Our students are using technology. We live in a future where the rate of change with technology is increasing and increasing. There's Moore's Law. I mean, technology is increasing at a very fast rate. The thing about it is, is that we don't know. I mean, we are teaching middle school. Whether it's five years or nine years, the future is going to be different. And so, I can't say that because I teach my student a certain app or I teach them to do a certain process that they are going to be using that process five years from now. Because that's not true. Just like that web quest. Although there are some great web quests that I would still use today. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. that's uh, I, not the web quest. We I mean, <laughs> just don't make them anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: I mean, the, technology changes. Them. We don't know what the future is going to look like, but we have to teach our we have to teach in a way that. Um, creates relevancy and interest for our students. We have to teach in a way that creates uh, our students or encourages our students to become uh, critical thinkers who are uh, engaged with content and who know how to adapt to a variety of skill sets because we just don't know.
3: Well, I just want to say something cool that happened to me today and yesterday. I gave my student, And I should preface this by saying that I do have a really great group of students who consider themselves advanced and they are pretty good at school. So that could be added to this, but I gave them a project that
1: take all the credit Hillary. I, uh,
3: I asked them to make a video and they could have used the school iPads, but they also could have used their own device. And then they were all supposed to get it to me. And up to the day of the assignment, as Aaron knows, I didn't actually know the medium for which we were going to share the videos. We ended up picking YouTube because it had the least restrictive, I guess, way to sign on and have multiple, uh, videos uploaded to the same spot. Um, and so I, t- I approached my kids with this, I don't actually know moving target of what we're going to do. And they, many of them, uh, went home and, uh, video recorded on their own device. And then this morning when I got to school, I had 15 different ways of getting that video to me when, whether or not it was OneDrive or Google drive or YouTube or email. And, The kids knew way more than me, and then also I asked them to do this very simple thing, which was to make an instructional video on one content area, and I have gotten time-lapse videos, I've gotten stopgap videos, I've gotten music videos, I've gotten rap videos. It's just, I'm blown away by the effects and the amount of editing and skill that they have, and also the amount of engagement they put into it when I gave them really broad parameters, and then they were able to come back, and I, I think this is by far the n- most engagement I've had out of any assessment based activity we've ever done.
1: And that's the thing is like, we all know that if you're going to be truly, if you ever teach a kid a skill to show mastery is have them to teach it to another kid. Cause that's how you really learn a skill. I mean, we weren't really good teachers when we first started out, we all <laughs> no. were there and we're all trying <laughs> to figure out stuff. And the more we practiced, the better we got at becoming good teachers. Um, But Hillary, you should take a lot of pride in the fact that you've got this great idea and these kids are fully engaged. But to go back to what Chris was saying, yeah, technology is not a panacea. And I think that's what people in our society thinks it is. Oh, it's all there. It's all technology. And it's not. And that's a struggle I have at times with technology. And I think I just kind of wrote it down to the basics. Though... We are very fortunate right now, and no one knows about this really, is that our district has given every student in middle school and high school five copies of Microsoft Office for free. Awesome. Because we have kids who are don't have access to that.
3: I didn't know that in school. My bad.
1: I um, should have told you. And staff now has a OneDrive account that has a terabyte. And only Chris will use up the terabyte on films. Um,
0: <laughs> they take up a lot of space.
1: They do. Um so I've been telling this kid, my kids, when we started this final project that they had to enter to research a country and an issue in that country, and they had all this research due to SBAC, unfortunately, I'm going to run it back there. We were limited on technology. Um, I was telling kids, you download, get your phone out, download Word, download Power, PowerPoint. I'll figure out a way to get it to me. And we figure, you can email it to yourself and you can email it to me. So almost all my kids downloaded Word and downloaded PowerPoint onto their phones so they can access it that. And I've had more kids work on their phones doing Word and PowerPoint, and it's the first time, and it's not a really cool video engagement, but they're like, oh, my God, I could have my phone out and actually make it useful instead of how many times can I get the stupid man across the street, Frogger, you know,
0: to <laughs> Well, also effect.
3: problems, I mean, I feel like the main heard a wave jumped over today was, how are we going to get the information to a central location where everyone can view it? And the kids were able to problem solve through how are we going to do this and then trial and error and all they were working together. Let me show you. I can show you how to upload that. Oh, you don't have Google Drive. I can show you how to work it so you can send it to YouTube. It's just like, for one day, they just all work together and it was beautiful. Everyone should, everyone should become a teacher.
2: <laughs> Tyler, I, think, I think you're right that it's kind of good to tell a story or a narrative about how technology is successful. So, I mean, I've been trying to figure out all sorts of different ways this year to incorporate technology and I have f- learned throughout the course of this year that there are things I'm even going to do differently next year. This is an ongoing process. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that really makes me feel like Figuring out how to use technology and incorporate it into my classroom is useful. Is thinking about the podcast that you and I did, Aaron, because I have students that uh, I teach um, seventh grade language arts, and some of my students do not come to school ready to be successful. They have some obstacles in their way. And even though I pride myself on being a teacher who, uh, tries to demonstrate that i value my students and i get to know them and form strong relationships with them there are students that for whatever reason i'm not able to form that strong relationship with and those students throughout without i mean even despite my best intention intentions they haven't been successful in one way or another doing a traditional assignment if it's writing a traditional essay whether it's on demand or process essay or they're going home they haven't been successful but a highlight is that throughout the, the process of doing the podcast, I literally had every single student record There are students that I would have had no basis to know whether or not they would have been able to write or make a claim without doing that work of the podcast. There are students that demonstrated their compet- competency to me in relation to standards that I just would not have otherwise had data to say that, yes, they des- they deserve, not that they should, they will pass because they did this, but they deserve to pass. They were able to demonstrate that they have the ability to meet these standards in a way that's non-traditional. And that is incredibly powerful to say that I, as a teacher, can change what I'm doing and figure out a different way to reach these students and they are going to demonstrate that they are at standard and they're going to do the work.
0: Well, and I and think then. that points to the to what we were talking about at the beginning is that the hallmark of good teachers is not necessarily about the technology, but what are ways that we're reaching students in different ways? And we have all this cool technology at our fingertips and there are ways that we can engage students in ways that are, uh, you know, different than some of the traditional things that we've done and that can get interesting group work or interesting dynamics that you never would have expected and also gives... A lot of student voice and expertise which can be positive
1: but there's also the downside when you're relying on technology for a lesson and it fails you and you're like saying every word (laughs) that you can't say out loud but inside your head that's that's the downside and you're only limited as you were saying bandwidth or access for students since we have filters though 90 percent of kids know how to get around every filter Aaron um,
0: <laughs> yeah they teach me that that's one of the that, things yeah, they teach me yeah, about yeah. technology I
1: know how to get around this <laughs> that's at times the hang up and and so and when we're talking about technology you've got two young people one older person um, oldish I thought we were old-ish. the same
0: age Not
1: <laughs> we're, same age
0: yeah oh, also we're voice. Oh, boy. we're on radio no one knows our ages <laughs>
1: I'm older than dirt. Now, the issue, though, is um, you have teachers that fight back because of the tried and true methods. And sometimes there there's a place for those tried and true methods. Absolutely. Don't get me wrong. Oh, yeah.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And so, but... This is part of the struggle we have at our school is you pretty much, I think, have about a 50-50 split of people who are willing to go for technology and try it. Then you have the other half who are going to do the tried and true methods.
0: And I think... I, well, and I would say, actually speaking to that, I think there are people who are willing to try it. I think it's just there is a bigger hurdle for some... Like, if you haven't been using mm-hmm. it. And so if the bigger hurdle is it's going to take a lot of extra time for you to plan and you already have something that's worked I th- or that could work, I think mostly I say that because I've talked to a lot of teachers and some of the ones who haven't used it are kind of where you were talking about Hillary in the first place where where it's like, you're um, like, you didn't really know what it was going to be. And you're trying uh, uh, with, with like YouTube tutorial that you had to kind of jump in. And luckily you had some experience on your own, but I think part of it is there are teachers. There's like 50% who are like, look, I have tried and true methods and technology has been really frustrating to me. And I don't get any, or I don't get much support from it. Um, well, let me. I have in. a
3: perspective for Paul. So, one of the worst things right. in the world, one of the biggest the worst child <laughs> <The> worst. abuses, <laughs> might be homeschooling. And
0: <laughs> oh wait 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 wait, wait. <laughs> oh god wait that has to
1: be on another Hold podcast yeah. no, 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 I like, have a point
3: <laughs> I have a point. Are you editing really? No. Oh, uh, editing right Okay, now. <laughs> so um, <laughs> don't don't take that out. It's true. Uh, the but restaurant. the point is, the reason the reason homeschooling is problematic is because for a child to get the perspective of only one person uh, all day long really doesn't leave them with that open of a mind, and so perhaps teachers who use technology and some who don't are giving the student a perspective of different ways to learn and different ways to access information and also being able to relate and adapt to different situations. Just like having different teachers with different personalities during the day is really important to uh, building the skills of being adaptable in the workplace and in relationships. How is
1: that tested?
2: (laughs) I just want to go back to what you were saying about teachers uh, kind of facing... Like a, a certain level of frustration with not having the support they need to adopt you know, the use of technology in their classes. Because even though I'm somebody who is very comfortable using technology and taking risks when it comes to technology in my classroom, I find that just because of the sheer number of students that I have, uh, the amount of time that I have in a day to just get things done, that I don't have enough time, nor the resources when it comes to technology, to do even half of the things that I can think of to do. It just doesn't happen. I don't have the time in a day to plan those, you know, different units and to figure out how I'm really going to take that idea about a specific technology and, and does, you know, fit it with my curriculum and figure out how I'm going to design assessments around it. I don't have the time. I mean, in Washington, we're 47th, I think, in the nation in terms of class size. And we have no- Someone's
3: been getting their union emails.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so we, it, it's problematic. I mean, it's problematic to be a teacher and to figure out, you make decisions every single day and hundreds of them about where you are going to spend your time. And for some people, including myself, even though I'm very familiar with technology, I make decisions every single day that say, because of the other work that I have to do, I'm not going to focus on technology in this moment. No. And. It's it's very problematic. We just we don't have a system that gives um, our teachers enough time to do kind of what they know how to do or what they can think up to do. Most teachers are overworked and are you know working very hard to do the core classroom functions, and so it becomes very problematic to figure out how to use technology so or you, to implement other. I mean,
1: you do what I did. You go to Aaron, you go to your local librarian <laughs> and you say, Aaron, I'm dead. Help me out. And she <laughs> says, I've got this great idea. We'll make a comic strip and I'll teach it. I'm like all yours. And so I got it two days
2: off. Um, but two days to work two days to work <laughs> with, students with students individually Chris Paul. why are you putting all
3: your technology ideas into a good idea folder that you're sharing with us over Google Drive because I feel no, like no, other one drive one
1: drive one drive I, one think, drive. I think I was asked to do that, that actually, actually. <laughs> one drive has a lot more space and, and, and Hillary's like oh, whatever now the point though is no Chris you're, you're, you're totally right but I will bet you and Hillary you're both leaving you're going to do a podcast if you have the availability because you were able to try it with the help of Aaron you had the support now you're going to implement that and probably keep it in your curriculum Absolutely. as long as possible Hillary
3: because of Aaron
1: yeah, oh. because, yeah of Aaron. No, no. because
3: of you guys
1: no um and really also, Chris
3: too really helped me yeah. with the idea
1: and with Hillary oh, I don't want to get any props because you stopped by and asked no it's okay um i was like she wanted her father's consent Yeah, so, you so. you're
3: yeah. gonna be helping me tomorrow you just don't know it yet
1: yeah um but the point though is and hillary i'll bet you if you when you go to your new job if you have it you're definitely probably going to say now tell me what you really learned do a video presentation if you have that technology you're going to implement that into your lesson are you going to be using ipads every single day no and that's the thing about technology that's it's, it's It's that fine line of one to use it, one not to use it. How do we use it wisely? And a lot of times it's falling on your face because you try it the first time. And as I said earlier, you may just, it may die on you, but you can't give up. And none of our teachers should give up and they should always be willing to try.
3: But once I've done it and in the space where I was allowed to possibly fail and then change for the better, I think I will actually do it way more because it is a lot less... Difficult to facilitate the second time around.
1: That makes you innovative.
0: Well, and also if we're talking about a culture where we want to promote people trying things and I'm uh, talking about students that when you experience failure, that's when you learn. I think there could be power in students seeing like, oh, (laughs) there was a thing it didn't really go as planned and we're working with it. Yeah, the best Uh, thing is. And then you're problem-solving. So uh, so I think even the failed type of technology experiences can lead to powerful things.
2: However, when we have... Part of our performance evaluation, based off of standardized test scores of our students, it actually kind of limits the amount of creativity that, at least I, will put into my lessons. Because there's only so much I can do and so much risk that I can take before I feel like I'm outside the bounds of what's kind of safe for my students to be successful or as successful as possible on the assessment. It's probably also
3: difficult when you have... To prove that you can still teach after five years, when you're doing a professional certification uh, for the state.
1: Now, how, how do you truly feel? <laughs> and by the way, Chris, do you realize whenever you say um, standardized testing, you go in a robot voice? You you, you actually as <laughs> a minor. Voice. You make minor inflection change, and then you change. It's really interesting. Anyone who knows how do you me truly well, feel?
2: Knows that I- Make voices. <laughs> yes.
0: um, all right. Well, I. This is such a great conversation, and I'm going to wrap this up, and I don't really know how. So we're can not we, total can, downers. Can, can we make? No. Can, can we make concluding oh, statements no. as well? Yes. So, <laughs> um, so if ever, ever, everyone could just end with what they're exciting, excited about moving forward. Oh wait! You're gonna have to give us a second. Yeah, because I mean, (laughs) take a second. This is not like wait, wait.
1: It's not like wait, wait. Don't tell me where you know they give on the spot, and they're really smart with their witty comments. You guys
0: have been very smart this whole time. What's something excited, Chris? Okay, Um,
2: so there are many things in education that I am excited about going forward. There are all sorts of things from just transitioning and utilizing the knowledge that I gained this year and using technology in my classroom that I'm going to carry forward to next year. But what I'm most excited about is the fact that I don't know what the future for my students or for myself holds. That I know that because of the work that I've done as a teacher so far and the students that I've had, that there is a great deal of opportunity for me to become a better teacher and to figure out how to actualize my students um, even more than I already try to do. And I'm just excited by the fact that this is a messy business. And as a country, we're still figuring out what we want. But as we move forward throughout this year and into the next year, and more and more voices, uh, whether it's parents or other teachers or other uh, policy experts come into the fray, um, that hopefully that we can get to a point where we have a more unified, unified vision of what we want for education. And we really can get to a place where we are not only actualizing every single one of our students, but giving our students everything that they need to be successful. And for me, it comes from a very personal place. I was a failed and disenfranchised student. Some people know that I actually didn't graduate from high school, um, which is a really weird thing for a teacher to have not graduated from high school. And yes, I went to college, and I kind of overcompensated for that when I did. You (laughs) did
1: sneak it through the back
2: door? Yes, exactly. But because I was a failed and disenfranchised student, I have a different perspective than a lot of people. And I firmly believe that essentially all of our students can be successful given the right resources and the right opportunity. And our students deserve a system where we give them that. And right now with our current system where we focus on common core and high stakes testing, we're not giving that to our students. So there are things that we can do to do differently Um, for our students that will enable them to be successful. So what I'm excited excited about is that we're having this debate, that more and more people are talking about what they want for our students and that we are going to figure out a way forward, um, You know, not easily, but we will. We're going to figure out a way forward.
0: What about you, Hillary? What are you excited about? I think that it's
3: really difficult to look at a national scale of education And it really sucks. But every time I walk into another teacher's classroom and watch them teach, I always take away something I never thought of before, and I always appreciate what they're doing in their classroom. I think that if we continue to remember and realize that there are tons of people like us out there every day that are trying to do their best for kids, and for a lot of them are really making maybe the only difference in a kid's life sometimes that's really good to know and uh it renews my uh reason to become or to become an educator and continue to be an educator i think that i'll continue to be using video technology in my class and i'm really looking more forward to moving into a place where the kids are facilitating that through the internet and so i'm really happy that i was able to at the end of the year do this new project and i think it's going to really frame what ends up happening for me in the coming years. I think I'm going to get way more into it. And Paul?
1: Oh. I have no idea. And this is a scary thing because I'm losing two good colleagues um, who are sitting at this table. And I'm going to make this official. I'm going to really miss you. And now it's going to be on the internet forever. Or, I'm sorry, the interweb. I'm going to miss um, you, too. I'll miss you, too, Papa Bear. Oh, boy, Papa Bear. I'll um, miss
3: you, Brother Bear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, Sister Bear. <laughs> Oh my God! Are we? What's the family? The Bernstein, or, Bernstein, Bernstein, Bernstein Bears. Bears. Yes.
3: Didn't you have a teacher that taught you to read? The-
1: <laughs> no, that was my mom. I was homeschooled. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I finally got her to laugh. Now, <laughs> um, I don't know, Aaron. I really don't. I mean, I'm excited. Just every new year, I'm excited. It's a bunch of new kids. um it's a chance to build new relationships. It's a chance to start over. It's a chance to improve, and as every teacher, that's what you do. In my mind, you have a new chance to try and be better, and that's what makes it exciting. That's the thing. My use of technology, it may—I would love to try and do more comic books like you did. I'm sorry, as it said, strip maker, um, well, which you is you can call it a comic book. That's it what is I a comic it. book, I know, <laughs> um, but. I I don't know. I mean, my use of technology is really different than what Chris and Hillary do. And they did amazing projects. And I would love to do videos or a podcast of some kind. I don't know how I'm going to implement it. Let's Um, talk. But I'm not. Yeah, we'll talk. Um, But for me, it's the excitement of a new year. I mean, technically for me, fall is spring. It's rebirth. And that's how I look at it.
0: Oh, I have to go? (laughs) Um... I, I'm just excited that I get to work with such a great group of staff. I'm really sad because I'm <laughs> Hillary and Chris are leaving, but um, um I don't
2: I'm going to FaceTime you or uh, Skype. Don't worry. Yes,
0: but I'm going to Skype them in and it'll be a- amazing, but I'm excited about all the different ways that we can come together and learn. And I think it, despite all of the struggles and issues with testing and issues nationally, I see the teachers I work with every day and as a librarian I really get to see everyone and that makes me excited because there are teachers that I haven't worked very much with that I'd like to work with more there are teachers that I know really well Paul <laughs> that I would like to work with a lot more because I know that they'll be open to things um, I'll be in my fourth year of teaching so I feel like I, people sort of know me and I've gotten a chance to work so um, so yeah I'm excited to see what it'll bring thanks everyone for being on the show
3: No, thank, thank you, you.
0: That's the end of my show. Thanks for listening. You can find future episodes on AdequateReallyProgress.com, iTunes, and now the Microsoft Podcast app. Thanks to the band Inspira's song Follow the Waves for the upbeat music you are dancing to right now. Thanks to freesound.org for the Creative Commons license for user S-B-Y-A-N-D-I-J-I's alarm bell sound, user Totia's ya sound, and user Mental Sanity Off for the background chatter sound. Thanks for listening and talk to you next in a couple weeks.